A longtime Pentagon acquisition professional says one easy way to improve contracting is better communications with contractors early and often. At the recent Acquisition Research Symposium, Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr spoke with the Defense Contract Management Agency's director, Army Lieutenant General Dave Bassett. It's about setting a culture that that encourages that open dialogue with industry at all levels. Um, There's only a few circumstances in which you really don't want to be talking when you have a competitive request for proposals out or uh, potentially when there's litigation. But I think outside of those circumstances, it is critically important to have that open, ongoing discussion with industry around the contract. There's a tendency sometimes to worry about constructive changes or other things being construed as as contract direction. But I think experienced acquisition professionals, uh, whether it's the contracting officer or others that are involved in the execution of that work, can have that open, honest dialogue without there being any confusion about what constitutes contract direction. I think you had mentioned having those conversations before, say, an RFP is out there. Tell me a little bit about how you encourage contracting officers to reach out and the kind of things they need to be asking and the kind of conversations they need to have. I think in a lot of ways it's about getting really good feedback on your request for proposals and your requirements before they go out formally and to provide the kind of open forums to get feedback from all participants, not just any individual contractor. And sometimes that can be challenging because once an RFP is on the street, a contractor wants to be able to say they can satisfy them in order to be eligible for that award. And so to solicit that kind of feedback, I think, requires some very deliberate open, honest communication. And, and then the, the contracting community, and I, I think about sort of the program manager and the contracting officer working together at this stage, has to be careful that they're not tailoring the RFP to the needs of any particular vendor. And so soliciting that broad feedback, making sure that you clearly understand what you're asking for and industry's ability to satisfy it, uh, that you're not asking for the impossible, or that you're not asking for things that are going to drive cost or schedule in ways that you don't desire as a program manager, I think is really important. So there's things that they will tell you they can do, but there might be an impact later on cost or schedule that you may not anticipate. And to the extent you can get that feedback early on and then incorporate into your overall program strategy uh, as well as your contract, I think is really important. So I know that sometimes industry feels like contracting officers aren't realistic in what they're asking for. Is this something that sort of lends itself to a more realistic expectation? Yeah, I think, I think it's definitely something that can help with that. Contractors behave as they're incentivized to behave. And once an RFP is out there, they have a strong incentive to say they can meet it. So to solicit that feedback, and a lot of time it has to do with how you ask that question, you've got to give them space to to say something's maybe too hard to do, too expensive to do, too timely to do. Uh, and if you don't ask the question in the right way, you're not going to get those answers. And then you got you can't just do it with one contractor either. You've got to do it in a way that opens it up to, to everybody. And so going out with broad industry announcements, issuing draft RFPs with the right kind of questions associated with them and allowing time for answers, all of those things make sure that when you do go out with a final RFP, you can be a lot more confident that, that the outcome will be what you wanted and that their incentives are aligned with your desired outcome. So after you start talking to, say, one person, how much do you have to reach out and make sure that anyone else might have that conversation? Well, if you know you have an RFP coming, you really have an obligation to to do it in in a broad, open, and transparent way. And that's why you might see folks use uh, broad industry announcements or some vendor conferences is something that I've resorted to doing in the past. Because uh, once, once the actual RFP is on the street, you, you've got a legal requirement uh, to limit your communication to certain ways. 
And so it, that makes it that much more important that you get that feedback before you enter that phase of the contract. So is this a bigger challenge for smaller businesses? I mean, I think it can be. Uh, and with a, a lot of the small businesses are often going to just be a subcontractor to a, bar, a large prime. And so what you've got is you've got dialogue happening at multiple levels. So if you're not communicating with the large vendors that are probably likely to prime that contract, they're not then able to go have that similar conversation with their supply chain and their subcontractors in time to be able to inform their offer. So that's, you really got to start early if you can and, and plan that in. Talking about buying commercial products, this is something you brought up. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Uh, sure. I'll say we, as a department, we are all in favor of buying commercial items. And where something exists in the commercial marketplace that either can meet a military need or can be adapted to, to meet a military need, and we can streamline the contracting process using commerciality in the FAR, we want to be able to, to use those, that commercial contracting process to do so. Buying something commercial doesn't mean, though, that we don't have to get to a fair and reasonable price. So if there's commercial sales of an item and we can look to those commercial sales to establish that price, that makes our job really easy. Where it gets a lot more complicated is when something isn't sold widely commercially or where it's, it's something that's kind of like a commercial item but not exactly like a commercial item. And then the contracting officer has to determine what fair and reasonable looks like. And under some of the commercial contracting rules, We don't get to look at certified cost and pricing data to determine that price. And then we have to look to other means other than certified cost and pricing data to arrive at that fair and reasonable price. And so I think there is sometimes an expectation in industry that once they give us a commercial price, we have to accept it. I think that if it's established as a you know widely used commercial price, we'll do it. But if it's not, if it's not something that we can look to and establish that fair and reasonableness, then we have an obligation to make sure we're still getting good value for the government. We don't want to be in the business of buying the $500 hammers or the you know $1,200 toilet seats or whatever those stories are. Just because something's commercial doesn't mean we have to accept whatever price is offered. Going back again to communication, do you see any- any correlation between times when that was done well and there was good communication, good feedback, and the management of the contract after the fact? Certainly as a program manager, I was reviewing those RFPs before they went out. And, and if it's a big enough program, you're even having to go into the Pentagon to get approval to reach that RFP. So you got a lot, lot of eyes on target. You may even have a, a peer review of really senior contracting professionals looking at that RFP before it goes out. I mean, I think it absolutely works when it's done right. It's the kind of thing that you may not notice until later. You may not, as the RFP goes out to industry, that would not be the time where they're going to necessarily push back on what's in it. Oftentimes, the first time that you realize that you asked for something is when you get into execution and you're struggling and you wish you'd gone back and done it. But I think there's absolutely a correlation between programs that have been informed by meaningful dialogue with industry and those that maybe didn't get that level of feedback and they they just know less when they're asking for things maybe that are not aligned with their cost or schedule. With all the the changes and all the new technology, are the pathways that you have for acquisition sufficient? Are there enough different ways to do it to sort of custom model each program? Yeah, I'm a I'm a huge fan of the adaptive acquisition framework. It's given us some some default tools for certain things where you essentially get a pre-tailored acquisition strategy, which tailors out some of the things that you don't need to do, for example, for software or for business systems. In any event, you still have the ability to tailor whatever pathway you're on to make sure that the actions that you're taking, the activities that you're asking that contractor to perform are really the things necessary to deliver that product. And I think where you see really successful programs, they look at that acquisition pathway as a guideline and something that they can 
tailor to the needs of their program rather than as a, say, a cookbook where they have to follow every single step in the process. So having that culture that says, we're going to tailor the program to the product I'm buying and we're going to get the approvals we need to do that. It's not always easy, but if you do it up front, you normally get a better outcome. Army Lieutenant General Dave Bassett, Director of the Defense Contract Management Agency. Speaking with Federal News Network's Alex Lohr. Check out Alex's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, 
How has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, Now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? 
He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.